Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassink, and I'm the medical director for the Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight at the American Academy of Pediatrics. Today, I'm particularly excited to share conversation with Dr. Joe Wright. Dr. Wright is the Chief Health Equity Officer for the University of Maryland, a current member of the Board of Directors for the Academy of Pediatrics, and is the chair of the Board's Committee on Equity. Recently, the Academy published a statement on eliminating race-based medicine, which Dr. Wright was part of, and he shares some highlights from that new policy statement as well as how we as pediatricians can continue to elevate such topics within our practice to help move the needle towards equity in healthcare for all children. Stay tuned to hear our conversation. Joe, welcome. We're very delighted to have you with us today. And I wanted to ask you, you've done so much work on equity and were a lead author on the policy. How did you come to this particular work? Well, well, thank you. Uh... Sandy, and thank you for, for having me um, on the podcast today. Uh, well, first, let me just start with the, I think, the obvious as a card-carrying member of the American Academy of Pediatrics. So equity has certainly been part of the DNA of our organization for some time. What has uh, evolved, though, over the course of the last uh, few years is a, a, a concerted effort to actually execute on our promise to deliver and develop equitable systems of care for our kids. So from the standpoint of, uh, of the professional work that, that I've been doing as a both a board member and, um, and actually chair of the board committee on equity, this is where I find myself professionally. But um, I also want to stress that it's important for all of us to see ourselves in this work. And certainly from the standpoint of my own lived experience, um, this has been important to me. It, it certainly impacted my career as well as uh, my life as a, as a husband and father. And, 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 and certainly this is uh, close to home personally. So uh, the ability to bring all that together at this point is something that um, uh, finds us where we're having this conversation today. Thanks, Joe. And, and for our audience, we are going to talk about the policy briefly, but then really hone in on the intersectionality of the policy and our work in obesity and maybe some of the commonalities that we all face in addressing obesity in terms of weight bias and stigma and race. And so, Joe, I'd like to just have you start with giving us a primer on our new policy. Certainly, and, and what I'm going to do, I will describe what we mean uh, when, we, when we say race-based medicine and the elimination of race-based medicine. But I'll also share an example that I, I think all of our members need to be aware of that, that makes it clear what, what we're doing here. So there has been a long history in medicine and in our country of using race as a biologic proxy. And what I mean by that, race is a social construct and uh, race has been used to, to separate and, and define populations and, and in medicine it's been used 
as a, again, a, a biologic proxy that has been incorporated into practice guidelines that drive care. So this is an inappropriate use of race as a biologic proxy. And so it, when we talk about the elimination of race-based medicine, we're talking about the dismantling the inappropriate use of race as a, a dichotomizing or determinative variable in driving clinical care. The example that is probably um, top of mind for most pediatricians, and that has been uh, the poster child, for lack of a better term, to highlight this, is the clinical practice guideline around management of urinary tract infection in young children. This is a clinical practice guideline that was published in 2011. It was actually uh, reaffirmed in 2016 and had re recently come under scrutiny because the, the clinical practice guideline has as a decision-making point as part of the actual clinical algorithm, whether a child presenting is, is black or white. And if that child is black, investigators made a determination that there was a lower risk for urinary tract infection and thereby that child did not need a, a catheterized urine, uh, just to simplify the, the actual impact on care. Well, it, it turns out that there is no evidence or no explanation for the risk differential that the authors determined to use in incorporating race as a variable in that decision-making. And I'm happy to report that uh, because of the work, the recent work uh, around eliminating this kind of variable in uh, not only this algorithm, but others, the authors have gone back to the drawing board and recently published, just in June, in fact, an updated UTI calculator, uh, which has eliminated the use of race as a, a determinative variable and replaced it with two clinical variables, uh, that being history of fever or um, fever of greater than 48 hours or prior UTI. And so this is exactly what we're striving for to, to really do the work of incorporating meaningful clinical variables as opposed to lobbing in race uh, when we don't necessarily understand what the difference, ep epidemiologic difference may be. So I'm, I really credit these authors, these investigators for going back to their original science and building in meaningful variables that, that we as practitioners can use. And in fact, the calculator, they report that the calculator performs as well, as well uh, without the race variable and with the addition of the two clinical variables that I mentioned as was uh, purported in the original um, calculator. So long-winded answer, but this is, uh, and let me be clear, uh, I use a pediatric example, but these examples are throughout medicine. Uh, many, many examples, perhaps one, one other I'll mention uh, briefly that um, also has gotten a lot of attention, very high profile, is the risk classification for chronic kidney disease. And the fact that for decades, there has been a risk adjustment based on race in calculating the uh, something called the uh, 
glomerular filtration rate, the estimated GFR. And we're familiar with that from, uh, from our medical school and training. But guess what? All of that training, all of that for all of us included a race corrective factor that found black patients with chronic kidney disease presenting later and uh, in, in most cases in more advanced stages of disease than white patients based on this erroneous, this erroneous unsubstantiated um, calculus that was used to justify, and I won't get to the technical details, but it was based on a belief that black patients had a different skeletal mass than white patients, and that explains the difference in, in creatinine, and thereby, um, when, you, when you compare the calculation of the EGFR, black patients did not need to be referred, for instance, to advanced kidney care or in the, or in the worst case scenario to transplantation at the same level of disease as white patients. So that, again, I give two examples, one pediatric, one obviously we, we have children with chronic kidney disease as well. And uh, so Sandy, that's the, the technical application mm -hmm. of race-based mm -hmm. medicine, two examples, mm -hmm. and, and we have a heavy lift ahead of us to unwind what has historically been embedded in the practice of medicine for a long time. So, Joe, thank you. I really appreciate your explanation. And I often think about race as we do our work in obesity because many, many, many studies, maybe all previous studies, have looked at the prevalence of obesity by race, which is a demographic variable. But if we stop there, it really represents a barrier to our understanding the underlying context and risks of that particular child and family. And so, true, there are vulnerable groups that have higher rates of obesity, but uh, allowing yourself to sort of attribute that to race prevents you, prevents me as a clinician from really understanding what about that child and family, what about that environment that they're living in and the stresses to which they have been exposed is contributing to obesity. So it's not ex exactly what you said, but it does bear real thinking about how we're thinking about race as applied in what we're discussing today in understanding race in the context of the data on obesity. So uh, do you have any thoughts on helping us do that? To me, I look at race and I think, yes, true, but not helpful. Helpful is understanding that child is might have food insecurity or might not be able to get physical activity or might have been a child born of a mom who had gestational diabetes. Do you know what I, do you see where I'm going yeah. with this? Yeah, and, and something you said um, uh, that is very important for us to understand, we, we, we cannot ignore race. Let me be clear. Right. When we talk about dismantling or eliminating race-based medicine, we're talking specifically about the use of race as a biologic proxy. What you're describing um, is uh, uh, highlights the point that we can't ignore the impact of race on lived experience, in many cases, differential lived experience for our patients. And in fact, we must continue demographically to track what race may represent 
or race assignment may, may represent in terms of the experiences of, of families who um, may be suffering with obese or overweight uh, children or, or, or that characteristic in their family. Because, in fact, we know, we know that there are many attributable consequences that result from bias and discrimination mm -hmm. that may be based on race, that may be based on being overweight, that do impact outcomes. So, so what you've described is a perfect example of how we need to be aware, uh, and particularly from the standpoint of the intersectional contribution of either stress or, or um, negative experiences on children and their families based on race, based on other attributes. And so we have to be as cognizant and the term that I'm that that we're introducing uh, Sandy is that we have to be conscious of what mm -hmm. race means. We, we, we cannot base our approaches on race as an independent uh, factor, but we do have to be conscious of, 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 of what uh, race means in terms of, of what our families are experiencing. Historically, can't ignore uh, the contributions of race with regard to its, its uh, impact on access and other factors. So very important to make clear, and I'm glad you, you put it in that in that context, uh, we can't, uh, and this is, this is an inappropriate characterization for two pediatricians to, or for this pediatrician to say, but we, when it comes to race, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not, we, we absolutely must continue to be conscious of the impact of race on our, um, the lived experience of our families. So, Joe, now you're making me think of two things. One is race as sort of a barrier to further understanding, and the other is racism itself as a stressor, similar to what we have talked about with weight bias and stigma that is an actual physiologic trigger to hypothalamic pituitary activation and chronic stress, which you can draw a straight line from that to the propensity for obesity in a, a uh, person, in a child who has undergone any number of chronic stressors. So I think it's important as we're thinking this through to, to think about that as well, that racism, the effect of the toxic effect of racism is a physiologic one as well as a psychological one and all the other effects it has. How, how are you thinking about that? Yes, and again, you're, you're highlighting another important point for our members, and uh, it is racism, not race. Let me say that again, racism, not race. And we have to think about the impact of discrimination and bias on not only the lived experiences of families, but uh, as you mentioned, on the actual disruption of, of, of physiologic pathways that uh, you referenced. And not only that, we're also learning, and this was a science that was was not around at least when I was uh, coming through training. The 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 epigenetics, the 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 impact, the historical or intergenerational transmission of the stress that you refer to, not only can impact the individual directly, but may have 
downstream intergenerational impacts on families. And we see this, obviously, uh, we're learning that the chronic stress in particular can actually impact at the, the level of DNA at the cellular level and be transmitted from generation to generation. A newer science, obviously, that uh, certainly I am learning more and more about, but to your point, it highlights the fact that we must be cognizant not just of the, the, the psychologic impacts of, of being exposed to bias, discrimination on a daily basis, but also the long-term impacts that historically mediated racism, for instance, can have on future generations. So you're making me really think about all our, our thinking about uh, weight bias and stigma and how that similarly impacts families and uh, mothers and, and babies in terms of stress and the, the sort of the some of the commonalities between and people experiencing weight bias and stigma as well as racism. It's just additive. Now you have, you know, uh, a cluster of factors that are just increasing the stress as well as inhibiting many times access uh, to care and triggering uh, tremendous uh, biases that people may not even recognize they have in terms both of weight bias and stigma and racism. So one of the things we've been asking pediatricians to do in, the, in terms of weight bias and stigma is trying to be reflective in themselves and understand that there is an implicit cultural bias about obesity and even take some of the implicit biases tests to just understand where they're coming from, not in a blame scenario, but just understanding that we all are products of our culture and bring some of these things into our interactions with patients and we need to understand that. Does that resonate with how you're thinking about uh, helping people with understanding racism and the impact of racism? Yes, and Sandy, you're hitting all the, you're hitting all the points that uh, we need to be uh, making in terms of socializing this content with our, our, our members. Yes, we all have biases. We all have implicit biases that are a function of our own lived experiences. What I'm encouraged about, however, is that some of the more recent explorations into how implicit biases may manifest in terms of, of uh, how we treat our patients in clinical care may actually be amenable to change and you know, one of the challenges that, that that I will often get is that, well, implicit bias isn't that unconscious? I, you know, what can I do about that? Well, in fact, um, some of the work that's been done by uh, some members of the of our organization have begun to look at the awareness of what one's own implicit biases are through mechanisms, like you said, like the implicit association test and others and what we're finding is that when clinicians are made aware of their own biases and particularly when those biases uh, result in differential outcomes some of the more um, high profile work has been done around pain management and and uh, recent publications have demonstrated very clearly that implicit bias certainly plays a part in the um, use of pain um, relief for kids who have appendicitis, long bone fractures. Many studies have 
been done in adults, but more recently in kids um, that has been shown. And, and so uh, what, is, what is encouraging is that by showing people what their biases are in a very codified way, and then also linking it, and this is the, the, the next frontier, if you will, of work we need to do, linking the outcomes of implicitly held biases to deleterious outcomes. No one is going to be able to argue that, uh, again, I'll use the pain example, not relieving, adequately relieving pain in a child with appendicitis is the correct thing to do. So awareness around implicit bias uh, at least is, is, is seemingly a pathway for change for people to be aware, to bring that from the unconscious to a, to a conscious level of practice. Uh, so people are thinking about it. And uh, this is work that is yet to be done. But again, you make the point that the first step is for all of us to uh, admit that we, uh, we hold biases and um, uh, some of them may be implicit and that need to be explored. And, and so, yes, you're absolutely right that the first step is for uh, our members to just acknowledge that we all hold biases, and that's that is just part of being human beings in our society. You know, Joe, and I'm I'm thinking now one of the things that's important in in addressing or helping patients and and families with obesity is we have medication, we have surgery, but the the core here is helping them achieve a healthier lifestyle and. One of the things I'm really thinking about as we're talking is these biases, both weight and race, can lead to judgments, and judgments lead to, I think, not being nearly as effective at helping your patients change their lifestyle. So we're trying to really get to a judgment-free zone and a place of understanding and in thinking about weight bias and stigma and racism, one of the toxic effects is it can lead to making judgments about patients in an arena where we can't afford to make judgments. We have to really work toward achieving understanding and partnering with the patients. So how would you help us, Joe, approach our patients here? Like, do we talk about race? What do we do when we open the clinic door and how do we approach this? Uh, I get this question a lot with weight bias and stigma. You know, we, we address it with our patients. We acknowledge that kids may have been teased and bullied about their weight. And, and uh, often the kids don't even tell their parents this is happening and it's illuminating for all of us. How do we, how do we help our, how do we do this work that we need to do around racism? Well, again, you're, you're hitting on a very important um, intervention that we, we actually have the armamentarium to apply. So when we think about the rudiments of longitudinal care, bright futures, for instance, racial socialization needs to be a part of that the longitudinal relationship that we have with our patients and their families. So yes, we do need to talk about it. We do need to begin to, uh, children experience, um, the research shows, begin to experience a bias at a very early age. And so we must incorporate, thereby we must 
have our, our colleagues, all of us, uh, be aware of the rudiments of, um, of, of, of racial socialization in this country. Um, so that means that we all have to uh, come up on our learning curve to be able to speak to um, knowledgeably our, our, our families and our patients about what they're experiencing and, and to do so in an open-ended fashion so that the, the patients have an outlet for even understanding what they are experiencing. And, and so I'm encouraged, part of the, one of the objectives, one of the goals of our equity agenda at the academy is to formally incorporate racial socialization into Bright Futures so that our, our office-based pediatricians in particular have a guide, if you will, to assist in the relationship, the longitudinal relationship. I keep emphasizing that because clearly this is a developmental process, the way that uh, kids and families experience bias, experience stigma, and being able to help requires all of us to come up to speed on what that means as well. So we're, we're in the middle of a cycle of uh, the revision of Bright Futures, and so we are um, working towards formally incorporating what you're describing into Bright Futures on the, on the go forward. You know, I'm really happy to hear that because we are all looking for, you know, practical ways to help our patients. And we're, we're winding up our podcast today. And is there anything you would like to leave our members with as we close out this podcast? Well, Sandy, what this conversation today has uh, had me to realize is that um, we, we have been discussing the impacts of bias and discrimination largely through a race ethnicity lens. And that's appropriate, very appropriate, particularly given uh, the events of the last several years and the, the, the focus on, on um, anti-black racism in particular. But, but what we're, we have to be very cognizant of is that children experience bias in many different ways and, that for, and for many different reasons. And certainly that um, construct of intersectionality, there may be discrimination coming at children from a variety of directions for a variety of reasons based on a variety of phenotypic attributes. And that's real life. <laughs> and so when we yeah. think about how we, how we engage our members, we have to do it through a, from a real life frame. And uh, look, I, I have been a black pediatrician all of my professional life, and I've been a, a black man all of my life. But there are many, many experiences that are a function of, of other things that I do, other attributes, other unique components of my family, et cetera, that all weigh into the experience that I have. And, and I think that that's, um, we have to have a healthy respect for difference, the importance of difference, the synergy of difference. So we collectively uh, add up to a whole that's greater than the individual sum of our parts. And, and that's, that's something I wanna leave all of our members with, that there is real value in appreciating the, the, the differences that all of us bring to the table, including our patients. So Sandy, again, I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation today. And uh, it, it's certainly been enlightening for me as we think very strategically 
about how we engage our members in, in what can be difficult conversations. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Joe. And I really look forward to your work and the further work of the Academy on this really important topic. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Dr. Wright. As you heard, Joe has been doing equity and health equity work on behalf of children for a long time. And there are several takeaways from this conversation, but the one I'd like to highlight is the importance of looking beyond prevalence of disease by race alone. Because stopping there creates a barrier to our understanding of what is the lived experience of our patients and the intersectionality between race and, in this case, obesity. I also want to call your attention to resources that may be helpful. Eliminating race-based medicine policy statement, stigma experienced by children and adolescents with obesity, and the AAP equity agenda. resources or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations taking into account individual circumstances may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care from the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.